Amen. Well, every church takes on an identity over a period of time, meaning that the people within a particular community, wherever that church is, will begin to view that church in a particular way. They'll begin to, when they think of that church, different thoughts will come to their mind, whether good or bad. Uh, For some churches, they're merely identified by their size. If you've ever lived in a small town, which you do now, uh, you may sit and look at a particular church and go, well, that's the the big church. That's the largest church uh, in the county. Uh, Other people might look at a church and they might be identified by their preaching or a high view of Scripture. Others might really identify a church maybe with their excellent music and and their worship. And and still others might be known in the community by those that are very missional locally, trying to meet the needs of people as well as missions uh, around the globe. And so uh, churches will always form an identity uh, for themselves. And here's the key, that never happens uh, by accident It always happens intentionally because it's really the byproduct of really what the church chooses to emphasize the most. So whatever that church, whatever the believers, whatever the leadership thinks is important, they put an emphasis on that. And then what happens is they begin to become known for that very thing that they ultimately emphasize. And therefore, they retain, or they, they have their identity based on that. And so this got me thinking just a little bit of what is our identity here at Celebration Baptist Church. In other words, what do people who are not a part of Celebration think of Celebration? And when I mean Celebration, I mean you, all right, uh, and me. Uh, what do they think about us? Now, I don't think a biblical attitude is to go, who cares what they think about us? Well, it's a lost world. I think maybe we should care in some way, shape, or form of, what, uh, of how the world views us, how our community views us. Would you agree with that? And I begin to think, and look, my question really is, what do people think of when they hear the word celebration? Let me be really honest with you. I think the first thing is confusion because they're trying to think about what celebration it is. They're thinking celebration of Jacksonville or celebration off of 17. You guys not get this? All right, you never hear this over on 17 or the celebration that just opened up on the island, right? And so you've got all this confusion. Now, by the grace of God, if somehow they're able to discern that we're not a part of all those by the Spirit of God, then what we ultimately find out is when we is that when they begin to think about us, what do they what do they think of? Do they think that we're a church that has a high view of Scripture? Do they think of us as a church that's benevolent to the community and loving to the community and helpful? Do they think of us uh, being a church that really seeks to disciple people? Do they think of us as a church that really uh, has a high view of family and wants to train people in that? Uh, I I don't know what it is, but but let me tell you, all of those things are are fairly good in and of themselves. But I got to be honest with you, I don't want to be known for any of those things. I don't want to be known as simply the Bible, belie- the, the Bible preaching church. I, I don't want to be known simply as the missions church. I don't want to even be known as a family church. And we've got a whole lot of family going on, yes? Got big families going on. Hey, yeah, that's the big family church. That's weird, okay? And so, so that's just kind of what I, I don't want to be known by this. All those things may be important, may be significant, but I think they kind of miss the point. I think they're secondary, not primary. I think the primary thing that we want to be known for is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the cross of Christ. And what I'm going to be referring to over the next several weeks, about four or so weeks, as Mercy Hill. 
the place that we go to for the mercy of Jesus Christ to receive, to the place that he gave his life on the cross. Now, what I want to do today is this. We're going to be talking about that over several weeks, and it's a little bit different. It's a little bit theological. I'm going to have to kind of pull from different passages as I'm teaching through it. Normally, we're just in one book, so you're going to have to put your listening ears on, okay? Uh, But let me say this. Today, all I want to do before the Lord's Supper is I just want to give you a little bit of a history lesson on the cross itself to kind of set up the series. And and I want to tell you, because I want to make sure that I give uh, props to uh, a gentleman by the name of John Stott. If you, a very well-known book uh, known as The Cross of Christ. If you don't have it, you need to go ahead and read it. Excellent book. Uh, I'm gleaning quite a bit from one of his first chapters. It was so good. And so instead of me, you thinking I'm brilliant or boring, as some of you might find this, uh, I want to blame him for both, all right? Give him credit and blame him. Uh, it's not all from there, but uh, just some very, very good truths that he highlights. Let me, let's talk a little bit about the cross itself. I think you and I well know what I'm talking about when we talk about a cross. Uh, I, I think you also know that it is, in essence, the universal sign and symbol for Christianity. Would you agree with that? I've been uh, in a lot of different countries on almost every single continent. And no matter where I go, uh, and no matter what times I go, what people groups I go to, whether it be Asia, South Africa, America, North America, whatever it is, you go to these places, you see a cross, you instantaneously understand that it's, it's, it's a symbol of Christianity, that it's leading, and, and there's somebody there who's a Christian, or at least that's what it's ultimately standing uh, for. And so we understand that, and, and we shouldn't be surprised because almost every religion has some type of symbol in which it's identified with. Would you agree? Uh, all you have to do is see the annoying bumper sticker, coexist. Do you see that? Uh, and, uh, you know, it's usually something like that, and it says, you know, liberals you know, live forever, you know, that, that type of thing, and it's got coexist on there. Is this, are, are you guys know what I'm talking about? All right. You're just this pleasant all the time, I guess. And so, uh, so, so coexist on there. And, and then on there, what you have is, is, is you have different symbols and letters that are actually symbols of other religions, like the C in the beginning of it. You understand that that's kind of kind of the moon there of, that represents Islam. You see the X in it in coexist, and it's really in the form of the Star of David, which represents what? Uh, Judaism. You see there as well the S, which is the yin-yang, which ultimately represents Chinese philosophy. And then at the very end, praise God, you have the T, right, which is a cross. And when people see that, they know pretty much immediately what that ultimately stands for. It stands for Christianity. So it's a universal sign uh, throughout the world, throughout the ages for the most part, uh, that people identify it with Christ and with Christianity. Um, but did you know that it hasn't always been that way? Hasn't always been that way. The very earliest of believers didn't identify themselves or seek to identify themselves with the symbol of the cross. Now, I'm saying it very carefully because they did identify with the cross. If they didn't, they were lost, yes? So, so theologically, biblically, they identified with it, but they, they didn't try to be identified or to say, hey, look, that's going to be our symbol. There's a couple reasons why. One is, is because it was used for executing people. 
Yes? Uh, it, it, it was something that was actually created by the barbarians many years ago. It was adopted by the Greeks. It was adopted then by the Romans as well. And they would use it to be able to put to death um, the, the worst criminals, those who would murder and those who would steal and, and, and those who would try to come up and raise up and rise up uh, and try to sow discord against the Roman government. So it was a special type of heinous death that was deserved for the worst of the worst. So they didn't want to be identified with that, if, if you understand. And, and, and secondly, this was during a time of great persecution, and they didn't, wearing a cross or trying to identify with one particular symbol would, would really cause people to draw attention to them. Now, the early believers were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were willing to die, but they weren't signing up for it. You, you see that? They weren't sitting there going, yes, kill me. They were sitting around trying to share the gospel, but they were being careful with, with, with how they spoke and careful with what they ultimately did to make sure that they didn't bring any unnecessary uh, kind of threats against their own lives. And so, so they, they distanced themselves a little bit from the actual symbol of the cross, but they did start taking on symbols very early on in Christianity. As a matter of fact, if you go to Rome and you have the chance to go uh, uh, um, to the catacombs that are there, which are basically caves that are underneath that run the course of the, the city, it was a place where a lot of dead bodies were placed. Um, uh, during times of persecution, Christians would hide in these catacombs as well for safety. And if you go there, that there are signs that are all over the different walls. And there would be pictures of a peacock and of a dove. I haven't figured the peacock thing out, really, but the peacock and, and, and a dove. And there would be one of a fish. And these begin to become signs that Christians begin to identify with and identify each other with. And one of those signs you're most familiar with, and that would be the fish, right? Some of you got the little fish on the back, and some people have been so creative that they put their whole family fishes. You know, if they got like six kids, they got like six little fish on there. And, uh, and, and so they've got that. And you may know a little bit of history behind that. It's the ICTHIS. It's, it, it basically was an acronym. It stood for an acronym, which meant uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, and so what people would do, and you most likely know this, is, is to find out if somebody else was a believer, one person would in the sand would kind of draw a half of fish, and another person, if they didn't know, if they weren't a believer, they'd be like, dude, why you, that's just weird, why are you drawing in the sand? But if the, if the person was a believer, they would kind of finish out that picture of the fish so that the person understood, okay, this is a believer, this is a safe person I can communicate with and not be in fear of persecution. So we understand these things, but, but later on, what we begin to see is, is when art begin to kind of, uh, when we look at some very ancient art that people begin to ascribe to other types of symbols, they used to paint, begin to paint pictures of Noah's Ark and Daniel in the lion's den and the shepherd and the lamb, but, but, but they understood over a period of time that that, that wasn't distinguishing them ab uh, 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 among all the other world religions at the time. In fact, Judaism would embrace many of those same type pictures and stories. Even, even Muslims themselves would identify with some of those truths as well. So what Christians began to do at a very early age over a long period of time, every time, every time persecution would come about or anything else, they'd find themselves gravitating once again to the symbol of the cross. Over and over and over again, they would keep coming back to that cross. Now, what's interesting is it could have been anything else. They knew that they had to distinguish in them, distinguish in themselves, but uh, um, from all the other religions. So they understood the way to do that was through the person of Jesus Christ. But stop and think about it. They could have used a lot of other symbols. 
They could have used a, a, a little manger, a little crib from a manger. They could have used maybe a wash basin that he washed the feet of the disciples. They could have used a boat uh, that represented Jesus' teaching to the masses oftentimes. And also one of his greatest miracles of stilling the, stilling the storm. Uh, all of these different things. It could have even been the tomb, the empty tomb. We just celebrated Easter, right? And, and we even sang about he, that he's alive today. And it could have been a tomb that would have been great and it would have been wonderful, but even all of those things still don't just nail it, do they? Uh, they, they, they don't just, probably not a good word, but they don't, they don't sorry about that, but they don't actually, uh, I'll change that in the second service. And so it, it doesn't really, bring, it's not really central. What is central to everything in the Christian life and everything we know about is the cross. Here's the thing, the birth means nothing apart from the cross. The empty tomb means nothing apart from the cross. So, so for all of the world of Christianity, we center around this symbol of the cross and we can't get rid of it. Throughout history, the church's mind and heart has been focused on it. So the question is why? Why is their heart gravitated to this? John Calvin says very carefully, and I think very accurately, he says our sal- it, it, it's fixed on it because our salvation consists of the doctrines of the cross. Everything about the cross is ultimately why you and I have been born again and have the ability to be born again through repenting and placing our faith in, his, in the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's one. But let me give you an, another reason why I believe it is. I believe that the reason that the cross was on the mind and the heart of God's people for so long was because it was on the mind and the heart of their Savior, Jesus Christ, the one that we love and the one that we seek to emulate. Amen? It was on his mind. Now, what John Stott does in his book, which I think is excellent, he gives us the evidences of these things. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to jump around to a couple different passages. We don't normally do it. Thank you for being benevolent, all right? Just stick in there. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the evidences to show that God, Jesus Christ, what was at the forefront of his mind and heart, from as much as we hear about him, that it was constantly the cross. A couple things. Number one, we, we, hear very, we hear about his birth, and then we don't hear much about him at all until when? Until when? Until he comes, his public ministry, that he comes to be baptized at that particular point. So we don't hear a lot, but we do hear about one particular story in Luke chapter 2. And that is when Jesus is just like a little boy, right? And, and you know the story. All the moms are like, I know this story. It's so frightening. It's when Jesus, Mary, and Joseph go to where? Jerusalem to be able to observe the Passover. Remember this? And they leave, and all of a sudden, every mama's nightmare, where's Jesus? Right? Look, you don't want to go down in history being the one that lost the Savior, right? And so, so, so you're, you're looking, and you're like, that panic gets sets in. So they turn, they go back. Moms, it took three days to find the child. Three days to find him. She finds him. Where is he? He's in the temple. He's in the temple, and he's asking questions, and people are kind of amazed at this young boy who has all this intellect. And mama comes up, sounds just like a mom. Son, why have you treated us this way? Don't you love me? That's basically what she's saying. Moms, you're identifying. And then she says, she says to him, she says, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus' response, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So notice the hint. Already he's beginning to think of the cross that's coming to him. Why? Because first of all, even at the very young age, he's already identifying God the Father, the creator, as what? His father. 
And what is he doing? He says, he says, you should know I'm here. Why? Because there was an inward compulsion for him to be about and to know not only God's word, but to also be about the will of God and God's plan. And so already from that particular point, he's already setting his mind on what? On God's ultimate plan for him. We get to his baptism. What's the significance of that? A lot of significance. One aspect of that significance is that he's submitting himself fully and completely to who? God. It's why God sits down and says, this is my beloved son to whom I am well pleased. Why? The only person in existence who's ever fully submitted himself to God the Father in, in perfection. But we understand that the plan that he's submitting to is not going to be about popularity. It's not going to be uh, uh, about fame. Instead, when he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, what do we find out that that plan is going to be like? It's going to be about pain, suffering, and death. That's what this plan has for him. Now, there's three passages in Mark that I'm going to read through very quickly, very quickly, that I just want to highlight. The first one is in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. This is immediately after Jesus Christ feeds the 4,000. And he comes and he, and he takes his disciples and, and, and he takes them aside and he begins to ask the question, you know this story well, uh, who do men say that I am? And of course they answer. They said, some say that you're John the Baptist, other Elijah, other, others say that you're one of the other prophets. And he says, so important, right? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, being led by the Holy Spirit, what does he say? He says, you are the Christ. And what does Jesus say in response? Shh, shh, keep it down. And the Bible says there that he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is what we call the messianic secret, right, that we find throughout the Gospels. Why was he doing that? He was keeping it secret because of the, of the radical misconception of what this Messiah was going to be like. His apostles, his disciples, everybody else during that time believed that it was going to be this king, this powerful king that would come up and set up his earthly kingdom and would crush all of their enemies and to save them from all of their oppressions. Yes? And so this is what they thought. That there was nothing in their cognition. There was nothing in what they were teaching. It was in the word, but nothing that they were teaching that would think that there could be a savior that would come and he would be a suffering servant. But that's exactly who he was. And so Jesus wants to let them know and correct their false thinking. And in verse 31, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he must rise again. And, of course, we know what Peter does after this. What does he do? He rebukes Christ. He rebukes Jesus. Why? He can't imagine this kind of teaching. This is, this is the most preposterous thing he's ever heard. What does Jesus do? He rebukes them right back. And, and what does he say? Listen to the words. Get behind me, Satan. And that's the part that we always sticks with us. We're like, ooh, man, that's rough. Yeah? But listen to what he says. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And what was the things of God? What was Christ's mind set on? The cross. The reality of the cross. Let me, let me give you what, what Peter failed to see was that Jesus didn't, didn't come primarily to give him a better life, which the Jews thought they were ultimately going to do, but to give them life and to rescue them from their sin. Second evidence, Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. Here, Jesus and his disciples are passing through Galilee. And as they're going through, he's kind of incognito, doesn't want the crowds to know that he's there. And he gathers them together once again because he understands that they're not quite understanding. And he gathers them together and he says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of, of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise 
again. And the Bible says that the disciples really didn't understand what he was talking about, but they were afraid to be able to ask him. Because why? He's already repeated this one time before. And so what they do is to show that they truly don't get it, what they begin to do is they begin to argue amongst themselves who is the greatest amongst them. Now, how embarrassing is that? Here you are in the midst of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the creator of all things. He created you, and he created the very world that, they're, that they walked on, and you in his presence begin to sit there holding up phone fingers, number one fingers, going, who's number one, right? This is incredibly embarrassing. What is it showing that the eyes of the disciples were not on the cross? They were on whom? Themselves. So this is why the scriptures later in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2, 2 and 4 uh, two, chapter 2, verse 4, that's why Paul has to continually teach us. He says, let each of you not, not look on only to his own interests, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now note this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What do, you, what do you think was on Jesus' mind during this time? The cross, right? Mercy Hill. Last one, verse 10, in, in, or chapter 10. In chapter 10 and verse 33, there's Jesus. This is a passage that I read right before we began. There's Jesus, there's his disciples, and then there's a large crowd. Jesus turns to them in verse 33, and here he gives them more specifics of exactly what is going to happen to him than ever before. Listen to this. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days, he will rise again. He tells them in graphic detail what's going to happen to him. How do they respond? They don't get it. Their mind is not on the cross. It's anywhere but the cross. It's on themselves and on their flesh. How do we know? Because the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they begin to come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever it is that we ask you. And Jesus says, What is it that you would have me to do? And they said, Grant us to sit one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus said to them, You have no idea what it is that you're asking. He says, can you drink of the cup that I'm about to drink of? Can you, speaking of his death, he says, can you be baptized with the same baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? So arrogant, so, uh, so blown up in their own pride and so blind to the mind of Christ, they sit there with all confidence and say, yes, we can, having no clue whatsoever what Jesus Christ was ultimately talking about. Christ was cross-centered, but they were not. So each of these passages so would show that Jesus gives evidence that what was on the mind of Jesus, even at an early age, was the cross through every aspect of his ministry. Even while he was on the cross, the second to the last saying of the statement shows that this was all a part of what was on his mind and heart the entire time. Why? Because what we read in John chapter 19, verse 30 says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is what? Say it with me. It is finished. So the question for us and what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks is what was finished? What was completed? 
on that cross. And why is that even significant? And why in the world, when I say that we, we have an identity, do I want our identity to be based on that cross on Mercy Hill where Jesus Christ gave his life? Why so significant? You know, what we're going to do this morning is right now we're going to go ahead and we're going to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, right? And in doing that, Nick, you can come at this time. But let me just say just kind of a few things this morning. I think it's interesting that Jesus Christ, before he left, he gave us two ordinances. That's two things that we were supposed to practice as a church kind of on a regular basis. One is believer's baptism, right? And I believe we have baptism next week. Correct, Chris? Okay, he doesn't know. All right, yes, I believe we do because uh, I believe I'm baptizing one, so and I'm excited about it. So uh, we, I believe we have that. Uh, just write that down. And uh, so baptism next week. And what happens with baptism? It's believer's baptism. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, what do we do? We baptize them. That's their public profession of faith. Say that, public profession of faith. Public profession of faith is not walking the aisle saying, I do, all right? That, that, that's not biblically what it is. Nothing wrong with that. But the public profession of faith throughout Christian history has been the baptism to show that they were identifying with Christ and with salvation. Make this, that makes sense? And so, so we see that in the scriptures. And then, and then, but there's another ordinance that he gives us, and what is it? Hint, Lord's Supper, right? Some of you took a second. Yes, Lord's Supper. There we go, Lord's Supper. And what I think is really amazing about this is it doesn't tell us how often as we are to observe it. And a lot of people like to argue, but... I, you know, but what it says is as often as you eat this. In other words, even the Greek language there is that this is on a regular, consistent basis in which we do this. And what I think is interesting is that really the two things that he commands us to continually do as a body of Jesus Christ both go back to what? Cross to Mercy Hill. When a person's baptized, what's the very first thing that you say? Buried with him in baptism. You're, you're identifying with his what? Death. When we come together, here's what he says. He says, when you come together as a body of Jesus Christ, when your mind is out there in a million different ways, a million different places, you've got all kinds of difficulties inside of your life. You've got problems inside of your life. You've got, you've got struggles going on. He says, what I want you to do is continue to come back to the center, the cross of Jesus Christ. I want you to keep coming back to Mercy Hill. Here, here, here's the idea. Are you, let me just ask some questions. Are you struggling to forgive someone this morning? Go to the cross. Are you struggling to love this morning? Go to the cross. Are you struggling to find contentment? Go to the cross. Are you struggling with sin? Go to the cross. Are you feeling like a victim this morning? Go to the cross. Are you looking for forgiveness? Go to the cross. Go to Mercy Hill where God has more mercy than you have sinned. And he will bestow upon you his mercy and his grace wherever you are. Let's pray and we're going to respond and we're going to get our hearts right before God. I'm going to be down here. If you need to come and pray or you want to know more about Christ, you say, what's the salvation thing about? We want to walk you through that to make sure it's crystal clear but right now, we need to make sure that our hearts are right. And then we take, we, we take the sacraments in a worthy manner, as Paul encouraged us to do. So let's close our eyes. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing and respond, okay? Dear Jesus, 
we thank you. We love you. God, I pray that during this time, God, that our hearts are being made right before you. Only you can do that. Help us to look to the cross. Help us focus on you. Help us to love you. Help us to concentrate on you. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Stand with me. I'm going to be standing down here if you need prayer.